This is an ABC podcast. You want to dance the mask, you must service the composer. You've got to supplement yourself, your ego and, yes, your identity. You must, in fact, stand in front of the public and God and obliterate yourself. Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Screen Show, the first new episode of 2023. I'm Jason DeRosso. It's good to be back in the week that the Oscar nominations come out. And uh, on The Screen Show today, I'm speaking to Oscar nominee and former winner, of course, Kate Blanchett, about her new film, Tar. You've just heard some of the trailer. Plus, I'll be speaking as well to Jemima Khan, who has written the screenplay to a new romantic comedy from the working title crowd that looks at cross-cultural relationships in London. She'll be joined by the director, Shaker Kapoor. And there's a link here because Kapoor, of course, directed Kate in her breakout Oscar-nominated role uh, in Elizabeth back in 1998. Also coming up in this episode, something we hope to do regularly this year, we're going to take a step out of the current release cycle churn to look back at a great work from history, its significance and how it pushed screen art further. Specifically today, we're taking a look at a 1973 film from Senegal, much admired by many people, but uh, one very high-profile fan is uh, Martin Scorsese. For a lot of you, I'm sure that that's all you need to hear to guess which highly influential movie I'm talking about. In any case, if you don't know, do stay tuned to find out more as I'll be joined by the film curator at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, Ruby Arrowsmith-Todd. But now, let's take a look at Tar. Time is the thing. Uh-huh. Time is, is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. You know, my left hand shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real time, making the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time really? it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. I'd describe Tar as a psychological thriller, really. It's from American writer-director Todd Field. Not exactly prolific. This is the 50-something's third film, and it's set in the elite world of a prestigious Berlin orchestra. It's about the fall from grace of the American conductor of that orchestra, Lydia Tarr which is triggered by the death by suicide of her former protégé, Krista, with whom Lydia once shared more than just a professional relationship. The specifics are not really elaborated upon, but Field builds a sense of Lydia Tarr's mental anguish over this death that's part guilty conscience and part supernatural presence. Now, there are many ways to interpret this film, and you'll hear me go through a few of my theories with Kate Blanchett in the interview ahead. But since recording that chat in a hotel overlooking Sydney's Emerald Waters late last year, I've reflected and realised that at the core of Tar is a question. What does it mean as an audience to fall in love with a character whose power, whose drive and ambition comes ultimately from a corrosive place of self-hate, perhaps, and internalised snobbery? 
what is hidden, what is denied in Lydia Tarr's good taste and love of high culture? Are we, the audience, complicit in that erasure of everything and perhaps everyone who doesn't fit into the fantasy she represents? Now, that may not make much sense to you given, I presume, most of you haven't seen the film yet, but I don't reveal spoilers on this show, so I can't go into detail. But Todd Field does tell this story by placing us very much under the spell of his stylish, fiercely intelligent, but ultimately flawed protagonist. He utilises Blanchett's potent on-screen aura. She is a vision of sleekness and power, effortlessly switching between English and German, a figure dressed in immaculately tailored androgynous outfits. He places us figuratively in her corner as she commands and charms and bends the orchestra and her colleagues to her will. And then, when he's got us there, he shows us her cruel and ruthless side. As a director, Field is indebted, I'd say, to the thrillers of Michael Haneke, emulating the Austrian filmmaker's austere claustrophobia, his repression and viciousness. Although he doesn't quite possess the same flawless judgment when it comes to placing the camera and when it comes to knowing when to cut. He also doesn't possess... Haneke's thematic focus. Tar, as I've said, is many things. It's a Me Too allegory about power and sex in the workplace. It's also a critique of our current era and the supposed woke excesses of this era. It's inevitably, too, a film about a powerful woman, a queer woman, who becomes a victim of a public pylon. There are great performances from Nina Hoss as the first violinist and Lydia's partner, who lives with her and their young Syrian adopted daughter in a chic concrete bunker-like apartment in Berlin. Adding to the sense of brooding tension in the film is Naomi Melon from Portrait of a Lady on Fire, who plays Lydia Tarr's increasingly resentful assistant. And then there's newcomer Sophie Kauer, who's parachuted into the film as a destabilising force, a precociously talented Russian cellist who catches Lydia Tarr's eye, to put it mildly. As we watch their relationship, it seems like an old cycle is repeating. And it's fascinating to watch. The film gives us a hint of Lydia Tarr's history of abusive relationships in the form of a gift which arrives anonymously. It's the novel Challenge by Vita Sackville-West, a book whose lesbian subtext and themes of suicide are a thinly veiled accusation. But enough from me. Kate Blanchett is coming up. Kate Blanchett, welcome to The Screen Show. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. This is a film that deals with power, it deals with the administration of power, the abuse of power, I suppose, but it's also about a conductor. I was really, first of all, really curious about that first moment that you go on set and you step onto the pedestal in front of all these real, they're they're actual musicians. Mm -hmm. What that power felt like the first time you sort of raised the baton in character? I mean, was it anything like any sort of sensation you'd had as an actor in your career? Well, I, yes, it was. I mean, I'm, I'm acutely aware of what it feels like. It's a very overused word, but that liminal space between you as an actor standing as yourself off sta- in the wings and the moment before you step on stage into, into character. And you, I've learned over the years to trick myself that the profound and deep anxiety is, in fact, excitement. <laughs> so I tried that trick and it worked. And I realised I had, like, I suppose in, in the same way as most guest conductors only have, like, an eight-hour rehearsal for a, to play Marla's Fifth, you know, divided into chunks with, with an orchestra that's maybe preoccupied on, you know, other works that they're preparing that I only had two rehearsal sessions 
for the mala and for the, for the elgar and that I couldn't apologise for being there. I had to be generous, had to be open. I asked for their support. Fortunately, they were also outside their comfort zone. They had to act. So uh, I, I guess in any music making, and as a conductor, your instrument is a human instrument. It's the, it's the orchestra. The music has to be made between you. The Dresden Philharmonic, they were so generous. I mean, exceptional musicians. And we had the confidence and support of the concertmaster, Wolfgang there, who I was speaking to Simone Young about, and she was saying what an extraordinary man he was. And, and so he was an enormous uh, supporter and collaborator and uh, interpreter too. So it was exhilarating and addictive. What's addictive about it? Is it the exhilaration of the collaboration or is it partly a sense of the power you have? Look, I think power, um, you know, you were asking what did it feel like? Did I feel powerful? Power is far more fragile than we think it is. I mean, that's why The Wizard of Oz is one of the great stories because there's a, a small little man behind the curtain pulling levers. It's not Oz the great and powerful. Every person who we look at who is a maestro in whatever their, their field, they feel anxiety and insecurity. It's not, it's not a solid place. So it can be smashed down and it can be built up. I think power is different to authority. And what I had been told and what I experienced is that you can't, an orchestra really feels inauthenticity. They feel when somebody is not not asking them to genuinely do something, they, they, they can't stand the pretension. And because I genuinely needed something for them, I was leaning into them. And I realised from, from hours and hours and hours of watching various different conductors conduct, of watching interviews, watching orchestra play, you know, it's the... It's, very, it's a very idiosyncratic medium, so I had to find my own way. But what is exhilarating, it's not the power, it's the sound that comes back at you. And I think it's like it's when you're on stage as an actor, you're acting between one another, and that's where the, the owl, it's a, it's, an, it's a form of alchemy, and that's where music making is an, an alchemy, conducting is an alchemy of sorts. It exists between you, but it's for an audience. And so I have an acute sense of audience. And when those theatres are empty, something's missing. It's, it's the communication through the other actors or through the musicians to the audience. And I think that that's a really... I miss, when, I miss it when I'm not on stage as an actor. Yeah, that was something I related to, um, but even though it's a very different art form. But I think that's the addictive and exhilarating part. This is a film that's very interested in um, the whole discussion around... Can we, should we demarcate between the art and the artist, especially when the artist has done terrible things? And there's an early scene where there's a young man of colour who talks about not being into Bach because of the kind of guy Bach was, basically. It's a more complex scene than that, but, but that issue is raised early on. And your character, Lydia Tarr, is very much for the separation of the art from the artist. So I'm wondering, I mean, this film, essentially it strikes me is, you know, it's part thriller, it's part ghost story, but it's about your character being at the increasingly disastrous intersection of the private and the public, the personal and the professional, mm. and she's coming undone, things that she's, she's, come, she's been brought undone by her desire in part as well. Tell me about that. Do you think she's the architect of her own demise? Is she victim? Is she a bit of both? Well, she's very restless and rigorous and obsessive, like all great musicians like all great artists are and I think she has a very brutal and tough inner critic. 
I think that those qualities have enabled her to get where she's gotten. And I think she's, in a way, she's the sort of the right person at the wrong time. That I had my my piano teacher in Budapest, Emma Virag, had said to me when I've been playing Bach, she said it's, you know, that music making is not... It's not a democratic thing. Not every note is important. And it's hard when you say to an orchestra, you are not important now, violas, the percussion sections, or we're going into the, the deeper strings. And that you've got to be careful the way you communicate that, that piece of you know, information. But when you've been working with an orchestra, and I know this from my experience in the theatre company, when you work with a group of people for a long time, you develop a shorthand. But you've also now, you've, you've really got to be, it's, how do you be brutal to get the results? Because sometimes you need to say to someone, it is not good enough. You are not playing your best. You are not, we can be better than this. How do you do that whilst being respectful? And I think you can be both of those things. I, I think what, what is happening, what where we see the character of Lydia Tarr, is that she's also, she's about to turn 50. She's also getting to the end of the cycle. She's summiting her career. As a creator, the bravest, most boldest thing she can do is to step away, to burn it and leave and start again. But power is a very compelling and corruptive force. And so often we see people in creative positions, but also heads of banks, heads of architecture firms, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the performing arts, who stay there too long because they can't imagine not being in a powerful position. We see it in politics all the time. You know, it's the hardest thing is when you don't have anything to say, when your time is done, it is time to go. I think she knows that as an artist, but as a human being who is who is vain, like we all are, and, and who is um, insecure, as we all are, you, you don't want to let go of that position because you can't imagine life without it. So she's pulled in two different directions. But, you know, I think that's what I really love about the movie is because it, it, you could say it's a fall from grace, but is she the architect of her own demise on some subconscious level? And I think the answer is probably creatively yes. I mean, it's that thing of she's she's needing to be an administrator, she's needing to manage people, she's also needing to be creative. Yeah. And within all of this, there's the really treacherous ground of her sexual desire, really, as well, her desire for people, um, which really ends up crossing a line, I suppose. She lives in a bubble and the people she's going to, who are going to turn her eye are going to be, unfortunately, people at work. And this just complicates it enormously, I think. It's interesting you say that because personally... I mean, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested in all those interpretations. What I think about the character is utterly irrelevant. I'm much more interested in what you think. But when I was thinking about her relationship to the young cellist, I kept thinking that she was looking at... It's like a muse, in a way, that she's looking at someone right at the beginning of their career. And she's someone who is deep mid-career, thinking, I want to warm my creative feet by that fire. I want to be around that energy. And is that sexual or is that because of the age difference or because of her, you know, she's in a same-sex relationship? I don't know that it... She just wants to be near it, close to it. You know, it there's a lot of melancholy and wistfulness in it, regret and sadness that she's not at that place herself anymore. And so I didn't think about it. I'm sure I can totally understand why it's seen as being sexual, but I didn't really think about it that way. 
I was also wondering, I read an interview where you mentioned Antonia Brico, the Dutch-born conductor who lived most of her life, I think, or the later part of her career in the US. And um, you talked about a documentary, which I went and saw. It's wonderful. It's a good documentary, it's yeah, really yeah. Rough and ready, but it's oh, it's great, yeah, yeah. It's a real, and she's so open there. And she talks at one point about um, setting up an all-female orchestra, and in, which I think was in Germany. Or perhaps not, but anyway, it she it was in the States. But she set up the orchestra, and then after proving her point, she sort of said, look, then I disbanded it or allowed men to come in because I thought I'd... And there's an early scene between you and Mark Strong where he plays a, a kind of almost hobbyist conductor, someone lesser, but your friends, and you talk about the fellowship that you your characters organise for women, and your character at this point is sort of saying, well, maybe we just open it up to men as well, and maybe the job, our work here is done. And this is another interpretation I have. I wonder if lurking in this film is a kind of critique of Lydia Tarr as a bad feminist or a, or a woman who thinks battles have been won and are irreversible now, certain victories are irreversible, but is actually mistaken, mistaking her power for broader structural change. I was wondering if that's lurking in the film for you. Well, personally, just to talk about terms, I don't think there's such a thing as a bad feminist. I don't think women are, are a monolith. I don't think they think, you know, um, in the same way about all things. I do think Lydia is someone who believes in the power of exception. And she's also, she's not making a, a decree. She's musing. I think she's thinking, we're seeing, we're seeing her throughout the film at a point of change. And so she's questioning everything. But the problem is she's talking about these things to a consummate politician who's a politician above being a musician, and that's Elliot Kaplan, who's provided the private planes and all of these things which, you know, she enjoys, but that he will also, they're all conditional. He wants something from her. I think it's a really telling, a telling scene. But I, I think she's also maybe where I would disagree with that musing, but I've also, like every feminist, asked that question, at what point do you say that this is, we can stop being political about the female experience. I think that we, Rebecca Solnit writes about victories that we make along the way and that celebrating a victory is not the point to give up. It's the point of saying, it's, it, she talks about the, the 70%, the, the 77 cent achievement is that, you know, at one particular point in history, women were paid 66 cents in America to every dollar that men were paid. And then at one point they got to 77 cents. And a lot of people said, that's fantastic. And on the, in the same level, people were also saying, no, it's not, it's terrible. We've got to, it's terrible. And she was saying, all I'm saying is, let's celebrate the fact that we have got to 77% because, 77 cents, because we need the energy to keep going. It is not good enough, but this is a victory. And I think that she's at the point where she's saying, have we achieved enough? Have I achieved enough? Do we need to change this? As any creative person, you ask those questions, it's part of the process. And the film is a process film. And, uh, and so I don't think, A, I don't think there's such a thing as a bad feminist, but I don't, I don't think she is one. Um, obviously, the, the reckonings we've had recently about art and the artist and, and you know, um, art being tarnished by artists who are who've done terrible things, that's a reckoning that's mostly been around male figures, overwhelmingly. What's the significance of this film being about a fall from grace, the fall from grace of a, of a lesbian, female and a lesbian? Is there a significance? I didn't think, I'm, that's for an audience to decide, I didn't think about that once. Um, I think if a man 
um, had been at the centre of this film, you would not have had an, as nuanced an examination of the corruptive, corrosive nature of institutional power and power generally. Between. Why is that? Because I think that we understand what that looks like. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, a fairy tale. There's never been a female head of the Berlin Philharmonic as extraordinary orchestra. I mean, Simone Young, when I kept thinking throughout this, the extraordinary achievements of, of Simone as a conductor going in the 90s and, and taking on, you know, the orchestras of Vienna, one of the most conservative music-making cultures in the world, when there were no examples of, of, of her. There's a wonderful documentary that's been made about Simone recently and... Um, they talk about the fact that well, I think it was 1994 or 1997 was the first female member of of the orchestra, not a female conductor in Vienna, and and that is that is recent history. Um, but sorry, I don't. What, well, so so the, the significance of her being female and and it being about power, being a film about power and a fall from grace. I think what what I was referring to is that we we know what that looks like in a man but we don't know what that looks like in a woman. And so therefore it's something that we don't see a lot. So we're able to lean into the complexity of the question in a way that I don't think you would have um, been able to lean in in a way if, if, if it was a man. But I never once thought about, um, I don't think Lydia Tarr thinks about her gender at all. I don't, do you think about your gender? I don't think about my gender until someone closes a door in my face because of it or I'm, I'm not paid the same way because of it or, you know, in the same way that I don't think about the colour of my skin because I, I've had the dubious privilege of being born white. You know, like it's... Our sense of identity is a really complicated thing, I think, that we don't often think about. So we're in a really interesting point in human history where identity is is front and centre in, in cultural discussions. I'm really interested looking through your career and and you know Todd Fields talked about not being out, not being able to make this film without you. It was clearly a sort of collaboration in the pre-production. You've moulded this character together, I feel. And it reminded me when I've sp- spoken to people like actors like Juliette Binoche, you know, these are these are actors who are very front they're on the front foot with their careers. Some roles may just sort of come to them via the agent and they take it on, but often they're sort of collaborating with directors, almost moulding a film idea into, into, into action, um, into existence. And I'm wondering about that for you. Was there a point in your career when, when you thought, this is what I need to do, this is what I want to do, I want to be... Because it's almost entering into a class of sort of actor who's almost like the actor-auteur. There's a sense that the actor's really as much behind this film as as the director is now i'm not saying that is the case necessarily here but i do feel like you're one of these actors who's very much on the front foot when it comes to certain projects you take on um i've always thought that way when i came out of drama school i was advised not to take on an understudy role in top girls because i should wait to get a to go to the company you know as a as a lead role and i said i'm not working i need to work i'm going to be at the city theater company uh, you know, with Kerry Walker and Linda Cropper, and I and I get to perform for three weeks. I'm taking the job, and so I realised that I had to take. I I didn't I didn't know another way, 
I mean, it's, it's, I, uh, that's why I like working. It's the role, in a way, is secondary to the dialogue that one has with the other actors. In the case of a film, with, with the electrics department, with the costume department, with the director, you know, with the writer, with the script, it's, um, it's always, it's the dialogue that I find most interesting. And the part itself is very much secondary to the conversation that one has. So I don't know another way of, uh, of doing it. I don't know if it's common or not. But I mean, I think it is a, um, it's a furphy that, that actors are simply pawns to be moved around. You know, we, we, you're there to interpret the script and to take direction, but also to offer something. Because even if you offer something that is not in the right direction, you know that that's not we we're all going in another direction it's, it's um you've got to start somewhere you're part of you are part of the conversation you have a big responsibility i think kate blanchett it's been a pleasure thank you thank you thanks kate blanchett see her in tar a film that's very much worth your time in australian cinemas this week this is the screen show with me jason de rosso now, a very different film also out in cinemas this week is a romantic comedy in which British multiculturalism comes under the spotlight in a story about two households living next door to each other. On the one side, an extended family of three generations who originally hail from Pakistan, and on the other, well, a white British middle-aged woman who's a bit of an empty nester. She's recently divorced and her only daughter returns occasionally for visits. The film is called What's Love Got to Do With It? And it looks at the still common cultural practice of arranged marriages or assisted marriages, as they're called here, in British Asian families. The eligible bachelor here is Kaz, played by Shazad Latif, a handsome doctor in his early 30s whose parents, after some comical vignettes on the local Muslim dating scene, eventually decide to matchmake him with an aspiring human rights lawyer in Lahore, who's played by Sajal Ali. Meanwhile, next door, Emma Thompson is kind of an honorary white auntie in the film, is trying to find a suitable boyfriend for her perennially unlucky in love documentary filmmaker daughter, Zoe, played by Lily James, who lives on a houseboat on the Thames. Well, guess what? Zoe decides her next film is going to be about arranged marriages in modern Britain and the main subject is going to be her lifelong friend, the boy next door, Kaz. Now, I don't need to tell you much more about this plot. You may be able to guess what happens. The point of it, though, is it's not where we arrive, it's how we arrive there. And this is a good script with an astute eye for the contradictions and hypocrisies of human nature, written by Jemima Khan, who, of course, is better known as a producer and also as the former wife of a Pakistani politician and cricketing great Imran Khan. It is directed with a lot of skill by Shekhar Kapoor, both of them are coming up. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Ah, alaikum salam, Auntie Aisha. <laughs> what? You still can't say it. Assalamu alaikum, Aisha. There you go. Oh, that's exactly what I just said. Oh, is that grinder? Anyone we should meet? No. I'm getting married. You are? Who's the lucky lady? Don't know yet. What do you mean? I'm getting an arranged marriage. Well, assisted marriage. That's what we're calling it these days. Dare I ask, what about love? You grow to love the person you're with. What, like Stockholm Syndrome? <laughs> so, your ideas for your next film? I could follow my childhood friend to marry a stranger chosen by his parents. My big fat arranged wedding. <laughs> Meet the parents first. <laughs> Love contractually. Huh. Jemima and Shaker, welcome to the screen show. Thank you so much. Thank hey. you for having us. 
Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great. Jemima, you've you've produced quite a lot, and and I was scratching my head thinking, have you not made or written any other screenplays before this? Because it's it's a very accomplished screenplay, and it seems to know all the sort of rules, and then it breaks a couple, um, which we'll talk about. But thank you so much. Uh, no, I have not written a screenplay before. It was hard as nails to do. It took me ten years, uh, but I have produced a lot of TV and documentaries. Um, and I had a really good mentor who was Ol Parker, who read every single draft and gave me notes and told me, mainly told me, do better. Or he'd take a line and he'd say, uh, take the, he'd say, take the brakes off here or whatever. But anyway, he very kindly mentored me through the process. Take the brakes off, meaning go, go harder, yeah. go more honest? Yeah, I think so. Because this is a very honest cross-cultural um, rom-com, I think, and I think that's its beauty. And there we're sort of, um, I mean, you're working, also this is a film made by Working Title, which is the rom-com kind of production house studio. Um, so they know what they're doing. And I imagine that might have been daunting. But um, but you've, you've, made, you've made a film that I think ticks those boxes. And as, and as I say, though, is particularly honest for the specifics of this story. And it's not always pleasant in a way. Mm. Yeah, um, I was very lucky to make my first film with Working Title, who are the inventors of the genre. So, yeah. But And what I mean by that, and Shaker, maybe we can speak about this as well. These are characters who are saying awful things sometimes and it, and it works. There's a conviviality about the film, which I like a lot. But there's the odd sort of terrible, ghastly thing that someone will say inadvertently, often a very nice character, there are sort of racist stereotypes that fly through the film a little bit to comic effect, I should say, because overall it's a sort of celebration. Tell me about getting that tone right. Well, that's what life is like, right? I think where this film stands separately from what we call a rom-com is the fact that the characters are real. And even the character that you're talking about, the character of Kath, when she comes up with that, even when she says it, you believe it because there's a certain underlying honesty to what she's saying and there's a certain underlying honesty to the way the actor performs it. So this that's why you accept it. Yeah. yeah, Emma Thompson. And, and that's why you accept it because it's not being, she's not being dishonest. And that's what separates us from rom-com is the fundamental honesty of the film and the honesty of the characters and the performances. Because, but there are also things said by, say, the old grandmother, the matriarch yeah. of the, you know, which just sort of have jaws on the floor. But, you know, this is, these are what families are like. Um, tell me, Jemima, you've obviously, you know, had a marriage with Imran Khan. Uh, I was wondering how much of your experience, that cross-cultural relationship experience, informed this film. Uh, I think totally. Uh, I, I definitely couldn't have written this film if I hadn't had those 10 years uh, living in Pakistan and with half Pakistani kids. And everything, even uh, when Kaz leaves for the airport and he leaves extra time to be randomly selected, is something that I've had direct experience with. And I'm sure anyone who has certainly a Muslim sounding name like my kids, Suleiman and Qasim Khan, I have to factor in that you know, if I'm traveling with them in America and we have a short transit time, we're not going to make it if I'm with them, but we're fine when we're not. So because they're all of be it's kind air of quotes randomly selected yeah, for and so yeah, extra there's a lot of Yeah, exactly. So there's, uh, I think Kath is an interesting character because it's very easy to identify like straight up racism. That's not at all who Kath is. Kath is full of love for her neighbors. And I think that. 
both things are true. She both says things that are inappropriate. She doesn't have the language or the knowledge around how to be culturally tactful. And yet at the same time, she aspires to be like uh, the Shabana Azmi character. You know, it's all delivered with an enormous amount of love. And I think that I think that's what makes her interesting. Yeah, she aspires to be like the woman next door in, in a way. And what, what struck me as interesting, this is a film that is both about, you know, that, that old rom-com sort of core about following your heart, but it's also very respectful about arranged marriages or, or assisted marriages as, as it's called in the film, that whole cultural practice. Um, and I know, Jemima, you've written that or, or, or spoken about your marriage. It was the only sort of marriage of its kind in Imran Khan's family, everything else, all the other marriages were arranged and yours was the only one that ended in divorce, I think. Yes. Like you don't mind me saying. No, no. Well, yeah, ours was the only non-arranged marriage in his entire family history. He he was he comes from quite a conservative Patan family. And yes, as you say, the only one that ended in divorce. So much so that I started extolling the virtue of assisted marriage to my 30-year-old single girlfriends in London saying, OK, who would we choose? Let's get the committee together. Who would your parents choose? Well, I think one of the interesting layers, you could read this film as being, I think if Emma Thompson's character and Shabana Azmi's character, who are the two sort of women living next door to each other, mm -hmm. the two mothers, um, didn't kind of have a blind spot about the cultural barrier between their families, they might very well have tried to arrange a marriage between their respective, you know, offspring. Absolutely. Uh, and I think we were trying to kind of make that point, which is they are very alike. They grew up together. They have the same background. They went to the same school, but for the ethnic cultural differences. Mm. Uh, I don't know what the line is, but it's repeated in the film that that uh, Kaz says, played by Shazad Latif, that there's, there's continents between them, even though they're sort of literally next door neighbours. Um, who did you cast first in this film? I think uh, Lily James was the first casting we did. Yeah, but also because she draws the fund financing is an important thing, and then everybody came in, and then Emma came in, and of course Shazad. Uh, we auditioned him, and there was something very interesting about Shazad was that he seems so solid. He seemed even in his audition as if he knew what he wanted of life. You know, there was no hesitation, no doubt, and something so lit, solid about him. And that was a very interesting thing as against a character like Zoe, Lily James, who I always said felt like she was in a tumble dryer. So these two characters, one that knew what life was about and one that was constantly in a constant state of anxiety about her own life, you know, contrasted and thrown against each other till you discover we're actually all the same. You know, well, they're, and they're actually friends. the inverse. I didn't know that. In it real life, they've been friends for years. Oh. Uh, and I think that gives them a sort of ease between them that you actually really do believe they knew each other for years as children. That's remarkable. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. But and I also think the characters are the inverse of that description in the end. Mm -hmm. um, and, and because Kaz certainly, he does play, and a lot of people will recognise this archetype, he is, he is the perfect son. Yes, exactly. Of the migrant family, has done everything that's expected of him and does it willingly, by the way. And there's this wonderful hidden character. Mm, I agree. Who, who exists, who has broken the rules in this family. Yeah. And it's almost a taboo to, well, it is a taboo to speak about what she's done. And mm -hmm. that's interesting in a Muslim family. It's a mm. very, it's a very powerful, emotive mm. moment in the film when she re-enters frame. Mm -hmm. I'm talking, of course, about the sister. Where did she come from? 
those characters I've 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 met a number of people who've taken that path and I've seen the family reckoning with that you know up up close I found the whole sequence going to Pakistan for the wedding very interesting and I like the way that it doesn't really play on well it certainly doesn't play on cliche there are a few unexpected sides to various characters you know in, including Sajal Ali who plays the who, who, who plays the woman, um, young woman who has been, you know, is part of this arranged marriage, assisted marriage situation. Um, tell me about what, Jemima, what you wanted to show, I guess, a Western audience in particular about Pakistan. Yeah. Um, well, I think that we're all in the West pretty familiar with Pakistan, the most dangerous country on earth. You know, we've seen the Zero Dark Thirty, Homeland Pakistan, and, you know, it's often a very frightening place on the news, the front line of the war on the war on terror. And that didn't reflect the other Pakistan that I experienced, which is, you know, outside of politics, the fun, vibrant, hospitable, surprising, kind of crazy Pakistan. And I, so it was, it's my sort of, I think that's almost my favorite scene is the big wedding scene that Shaker directed so beautifully and I think it will surprise audiences and I think it was really important for me one of my motivations was to show a different Pakistan from the one that we normally see on our screens I just want to add to that when I was directing even as I was thinking there were people it doesn't matter you know they're Pakistan they're Indian they're Singaporean they're Chinese they're fundamentally they're people and they're all emotively underneath. We're all the same. And that's one big thing you should get out of this film is we're all the same. We're absolutely the same. Arranged marriage is just a word. We arrange marriages, which Italian mother does not try and arrange marriage. You know, it's all the same. But ultimately, it's about forgiveness in the film. It's about being in love. It's about family. It's about after the COVID is when somebody asked me, what do you want people to go out outside this film? I said, hug each other. Just go give the next person that you love a big hug. It, it is a wonderful ensemble uh, film, I think, Shaker. And um, I can't let you go without asking about another guest I have on the show this week, which is Kate Blanchett. You directed her to two Oscar-nominated performances in Elizabeth and Elizabeth the Golden Age. What makes her such a wonderful actor? She's the hardest-working actor I've ever seen. Number one. Number two, I've never seen an actor beat herself up or himself up so much because she tries and then tries to get it better. But, you know, she's a very, very instinctual actor. So her instincts, the ability to take her skin off and show the internal, like, you, t t you know, what, who she is internally, it's a scary thing. But she forces herself to do it. A lot of actors will rely on that intuition but with that, there's such fine intelligence. It's where I, I have an ability to manipulate my actors a lot. She was the one actor that I kept, and she said, okay, Shaker, I know what you're doing. Tell me what you really want. And then she would do it. So I didn't have to treat her like a child because she would catch on immediately. So there's a combination of extreme intu intuition, which then you can go with that. An extreme skill because of her years of theater and years of drama. That combination, a very bright girl, that combination is, is the killer combination and amazing. And she looks good. 
Shekhar Kapoor, Jemima Khan, thank you both for joining me on The Screen Show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Jemima Khan and Shekhar Kapoor, screenwriter and director of The Charming What's Love Got to Do With It, which is out in Australian cinemas now. This is The Screen Show with me, Jason DeRosso. We're going to take our eyes and ears away from current releases for a moment now and do something that we hope to do a lot more of this year, and that is uh, take a look at key moments and key works in the history of screen culture, partly inspired by the repertory cinemas and film clubs and galleries around the country, which are are showing old films, but also to engage with the various options that are available on streaming platforms as well. Today, my guest is film curator at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, Ruby Arrowsmith-Todd, and she's going to be talking about a groundbreaking 1973 Senegalese film about two young lovers on the run called Tuki Buki, written and directed by Gibral Diop Mambeti, one of only two features he made in his short life. He died at 53. Tuki Buki is screening as part of a series dedicated to outlaws and misfits that Ruby has programmed at the gallery called Badlands, films that are as diverse as the master wuxia classic Dragon Inn and Terence Malick's Badlands. They screen free Wednesday evenings and Sunday afternoons. Ruby is coming up next. Ah, je comprends maintenant. C'est à cause de badolo comme toi qu'elle vient toujours en retard en réunion. Attends voir. Ruby Arrowsmith Todd, let's summarize Tuki Buki um, to begin with. Let's talk dates, themes, synopses. How would you describe Tuki Buki? So Tuki Buki is a film made in 1973 by the really groundbreaking Senegalese director Jibril Diop Mambeti. It was a film that uh, Mambeti made at the age of 28 for $30,000 and he was entirely self-taught. So he'd had a background um, in theatre, he'd made a few short films, and then in 1973 he makes Tukibuki, which is an incredible jolt of a film. Um, in short, uh, it follows two young lovers, uh, Maury, who's a cowherd, played by Magay Niang, and Anta, a uni student played by Marem Niang. And the pair dream of, of fleeing Dakar, uh, where the film is set, and escaping to Paris. And this is very much a, a sort of mythologized romantic vision of the French capital. Of course, it's important to remember here that Senegal was colonized by France and the film being made in 1973, that's only 13 years after Senegal has gained um, its independence back. So these two young lovers, they want to escape and the film follows them as they hustle on the streets uh, on the back of a motorbike, which is adorned with zebu horns uh, on the handlebars, a very iconic image. And they basically engage in various kind of get-rich-quick schemes uh, until they, they end up at the port of Dakar and the question looms, will they leave their homeland? And just describing this film, the synopsis is um, relatively easy to describe in short, but as a film that you experience, it's a film of incredibly intense, lurching um, energies. I'd say it's, it's part Lovers on the Lamb film, so we might think of something like Bonnie and Clyde. It's, it's a part French New Wave-inspired fantasy, so this is definitely not a, a linear narrative. It's full of surrealist digressions. It's got... Um, 
an amazingly dissonant soundscape, associative editing, jump cuts. It's part gangster film, part comedy. And what really makes it unique is how Mambetti has combined these elements of European cinematic modernisms with the socio-political context of 1970s post-independent Senegal, as well as West African storytelling traditions. And so what we get is this revolutionary work of Senegalese cinema, but also of, of global cinema, full stop. It's interesting. I saw uh, Martin Scorsese in an interview uh, and, of course, the foundation that he set up uh, restored this film. And he describes, he refers, first of all, to the fact that um, Mimbeti talks about making this film in, in, uh, at a time of a violent crisis in his life and uh, wanting to make a lot of things explode. There's an anger behind the film. And then Scorsese um, says that uh, basically Tuki Buki explodes one image at a time. And it does have that explosive quality, doesn't it? It's got this, I mean, you've described it so beautifully, the dissociative editing, the remixing on the soundtrack, including this kind of Ritornello, that's this Josephine Baker um, song, where it's just a small segment of it. Um, she repeats again and again, Paris, 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 um, something to do with paradise on earth, a little bit of paradise on earth. And that's repeated and it starts to become all embedded in the African context, but also... This is, I don't know, there's a critique in the way that the, the repetition occurs. You're right. And the way I hear it, it, it kind of becomes, you know, this it's this jaunty French chantou song, which at times becomes almost jeering. Um, you know, this is a story of two disenchanted young people wanting to escape. But Mambetti is very much interrogating, I guess, the illusion of escape, the, the false promises of French colonial rule. And very much, as you said, kind of it's being created at a time when this nascent nationalism in Senegal and, and what it means to, to create a, a new form of kind of cinematic storytelling for a new nation is very live. And compared to other films that were being made at the time in the West African context, what Mambeti's doing here is, is really radical. And we say radical all the time, but this really was a departure from the prevailing social realist style that um, his fellow countrymen like Osman Sambene were using to make their films. As I, as I said, his film was, uh, was self-financed and that's again different. Um, there was still this colonial kind of hangover that many of the films being made in, in places like Mali and Burkina Faso and Mauritania still had kind of colonial, uh, still had funding from European centre and so the fact that this was a self-finance film gave Mambetti a great degree of freedom to experiment with film language. And it's interesting too that there it seems to be a, a mix of registers in the film. I mean, some moments of the film appear to be, you know, documentary footage basically and, and they're some of the strongest. I mean, there's all sorts of strong images in the film, the images of the sea glittering under this harsh or strong um, African light and it being on the west coast of Africa as well it reminded me a lot of looking at the ocean in my childhood in western australia the same that sun seems mm. to just bounce off the ocean with that same intensity and there's some beautiful images there that he creates but there's an image of two men in a wrestling match for example at a huge crowded event and just an image that sticks in your mind i'm not sure there's no logical, necessarily uh, logical reason that it's there, but it fits within this very poetic um, series of juxtapositions that this film ends up being. I mean, there is a storyline, but... I think that the film is is sort of best understood as 
as a as a sequence or probably sequence isn't the right word because it suggests a kind of linearity but a a series of encounters of digressions of of shifting tones so as you said there are um there are some moments in the film such as the wrestling match which seem to kind of come out of nowhere um and i, I believe that mumbetti has spoken about that wrestling match in terms of the new forms of neo-colonialisms which um were emerging in senegal and this kind of worry that so many of the structures and the structural inequalities that had been embedded throughout french colonial rule had been carried on through um, middle and upper class senegalese um senegalese people themselves but there are so many great surreal moments. There's a an image of a, of a white man with an axe in a tree, and that's never explained. Um, and Mambetti is very comfortable with with sitting with complexity and sitting with an ambiguity. And this is not a film which which tells you how to think or how to read and engage with its images. And yet, I think even if you're not familiar with you know, the very particular modes of West African storytelling, which are embedded in the film. So there's a figure of, of a griot, this kind of West African oral historian figure who at one point kind of comes comes into one scene and and tells the, the character Maury about the film. So it's a, it's a very sort of self-reflexive act. But I think even if you're not familiar with those traditions, um, there are so many pleasures to be found, both kind of visual, you know, uh, Mambetti is, is an incredible um, mise-en-scenist. Uh, he's such a knack for these striking images, you know, the, the lovers on the motorbike with the zebu horns driving um, down these dusty roads, but also such a, such a gifted sonic storyteller, as you say, and the soundscape is incredible. Another word that comes to mind to describe Tukibuki, and this is interesting if we talk about its its impact in 1973 when it comes out and how it's different from what had come before and the, the sort of more realist and social realist films that were being made in Africa. Um, the word that comes to mind is hybridity. And, and in that, the film becomes really quite strange often. And sonically, I mean, there's that hybridity where we've got sort of Josephine Baker, this really iconic African-American woman whose story about coming to Paris and being accepted in Paris has so many kind of important nuances, explains to us so much about race and and whiteness, I suppose. But anyway, she's on the soundtrack. You've got West African traditional music on the soundtrack. You've got Western classical music as well being listened to by people who we might not expect to listen to. You know, that's all being, there's a statement being made there too. So the hybridity is really important. It is. There, there's also such a rich, um, a rich soundscape of animals and of and of a very kind of rich symbolism. Um, so there's a quite um, graphic opening scene that's set in an abattoir, which uh, we see a, a goat being slaughtered, quite quite graphically. But these images of um, of kind of of, of carrion, of prey and predator and these sounds of kind of swooping gulls. And for me, it's the sound of the, the sea, which is in Mambetti's film, this space of promise and peril, which really suffuses, suffuses the whole film. Let's talk about um, the influence of Tukibuki, this 1973 iconic film, such an important work. Where do we, you know, if, if it's a pebble dropping into the ocean of or, or into the pond of world cinema, where where do the ripples extend to? 
The thing I love about a film like Tuki Buki is that it's it's possible to sort of situate it in so many different film historical lineages. You know, we might think about it in terms of the, the global efflorescence of black filmmaking in the early 70s. Think of somewhere like the other side uh, in, in L.A., there's the L.A. Rebellion. Um, we could think about it in terms of the histories of independent avant-garde filmmaking of so-called third cinema. But within the kind of West African filmmaking tradition, it really has a huge influence on on the next generation of filmmakers um, from, from that part of the world. So when it's released in Senegal, actually it wasn't initially well-received. It um, was panned by critics, and I think just because it, it marks such a kind of departure from the prevailing style. Internationally, um, it won various war- awards. It was heralded as, you know, the first African avant-garde film. It then sort of fell into a bit of a distribution black hole for about um, really until until 2008 when um, Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project restored it. That's, I guess, this distribution black hole in terms of its broader exhibition. But of course, there were always filmmakers drawn to Marbetti's work and filmmakers like the black British filmmaker um, John Acomfra, uh, people like Abdurrahman Sissiko, the great Mauritanian director, have all cited it. And more recently, um, there's a very high-profile example of it of it being paid homage when um, Beyonce and Jay Z uh, used the iconic image of the the lovers on a motorbike um, for for one of their tours. Another person I want to mention is Gibril Diop Mambetti's niece, Mati Diop, a great French Senegalese director. She actually made a film that was uh, directly looking at the legacy of her uncle's film. A Thousand Sons, wonderful documentary, yeah. And then um, more recently uh, had a feature film which is very much um, inspired by Tuki Buki, a film called Atlantique, which is available for viewing um, on Netflix, I believe. This is a film again set in Dakar and a ghost story about the dreams and perils of emigration. Ruby Arrowsmith-Todd, it's been a pleasure having you in. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jason. Ruby Arrowsmith-Todd on Tuki Buki which is screening for free at the Art Gallery of New South Wales on Sunday, February the 12th at 2pm as part of the ongoing series Badlands, which, remember, screens free films every Wednesday evening and Sunday afternoon. You can also find Tuki Buki uh, if you have a look online at the Criterion platform, but you may need a VPN. Before I go... Every year at this time in Australia on January 26th, it's becoming increasingly a moment for self-reflection as a nation amidst the barbecues and general holiday vibe. Many feel compelled or are certainly encouraged to take a look in the mirror. And uh, as a nation, I think a film that offers its contribution to that process of national collective reckoning this year is Larissa Berent's documentary, You Can Go Now, a film that explores the history of First Nations activism in Australia via contemporary artist Richard Bell. You'll find it in limited release in cinemas this week. I'm Jason DeRosso. I'm out of time. This has been The Screen Show. Thanks to producer Sarah Corbett and the ABC RN sound engineers who every week build the sonic bridge between you and me. And I'll catch you on that bridge, my fellow lovers of the screen, next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.